great to see you. We all doing all right? Yes, awesome. Well, hey, before we dive into the message, uh, I want to talk to you about this card that was in your seat when you first came in. So go ahead and grab it, if you will, and get it in your hands. Uh, in just a few weeks, April 21st to the 23rd, as a church, we have a huge opportunity to impact our community and world in some significant ways. And we're going to do this through what we call Bless Weekend. Uh, we have a very simple mission here at Cross Point. We talk about it all the time. This church exists to relentlessly pursue those far from God with the hope and love of Jesus. And that's what Bless Weekend is all about. Uh, I don't ever want our church to be the church that just hides out in a building once a week to sing some songs and listen to a guy get up and talk. Uh, I want our church, more importantly, to be focused on meeting people out there right where they are to offer the help and hope that only Jesus can provide. And so again, that's what we're going to do over the course of Blessed Weekend. Uh, there are three ways that we are asking every person who is a part of Cross Point City Church to uh, be invested in this, all right? And they're on the back of the card, so we'll just walk through it. Uh, the first way we want you to get involved is by serving, over the course of that weekend, we're going to be doing service projects in our community, and uh, these service projects vary in, in need and skill, so we're going to be doing home renovations, home repairs, we're going to assist in neighborhood cleanup, we're going to plant community gardens for families in need, uh, we'll invest in kids and families, we're going to provide free medical exams, I mean, we're doing all kinds of stuff to really help people, and so we want you to be a part of that. We need about 500 people to step up and to serve. And so that means two things. One, uh, there's a spot for you, and we need you to jump in. And, and two, let's not be those people who just sit back and go, ah, other people will do it. <laughs> right, I'm going to enjoy my Saturday. No, we all need to step up and, and be a part of this to make an impact, all right? The next way we want you to be a part is through sponsorship. Uh, all weekend long, from that Friday until Monday, we're going to be hosting the Compassion Mobile Experience in partnership with Compassion International. International. Uh, Compassion works all over the world for the purpose of releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. And this mobile experience will give you a firsthand look at what poverty does to children and families all over the world. And then at the end of the experience, you'll have a chance to actually sponsor a kid living somewhere. For $38 a month, you can ensure that a child has clean water, healthy food, uh, they get an education, and most importantly, they're put into a program where they hear about Jesus week after week. And I know this works. This ministry, it works. Uh, my wife and I sponsor a little girl in Burkina Faso, West Africa, and I have met her twice now, and I've seen firsthand the difference Compassion is making in her life and in her family's life. So we want you to be a part of that. You do need to register for a time to attend, all right? Uh, you can't just show up out of the blue. You got to reserve your spot. And I would also say, in addition to that, we need about 50 people to serve at the Compassion Experience all weekend long. And so if you want to help host guests that are going to come through that thing, that is yet another serving opportunity for you, all right? And then lastly, we want to ask you to get involved in that weekend through sacrifice. Here's what's amazing. On Sunday, April 23rd, we have decided that 100% of the offering that we give that day will be invested back into our community and into our world. All right, we have set the largest giving goal of the entire year for that Sunday, $65,000, which is aggressive because that's about $20,000 beyond our highest giving Sunday so far this year, but I truly believe that we can meet it, okay? Uh, if you look on the card, there's a list of tangible items that we're going to be investing money in. 
And so if you already give to Cross Point, I want you to know that's exactly where your money is going on April the 23rd, okay? Uh, if you don't yet get to give to Cross Point, read that and start praying about how God would have you jump in on this. Like, if you don't already give, April 23rd is a great Sunday to start giving because you have an opportunity to impact the lives of real people in huge, huge ways, all right? Listen, if you have questions on this or you want to sign up to serve, register for a time to attend the mobile experience, you can do it online at crosspointcity.com bless. You can also do it through our app. Or uh, you can go outside and talk to our blessed team before you go today. Just look for the dumpster. They'll be hanging out somewhere out there, all right? And they'd love to talk with you and connect with you, okay? If you have questions, please let us know. Take this with you as well. Put it on your fridge so that it serves as a reminder of what's coming, all right? Awesome. Well, hey, if you have a Bible or a device with some kind of Bible app, grab those things and let's go to Mark 3 together. Mark chapter 3. We're in week 11 of a year-long series on the book of Mark and today we're actually going to wrap up chapter 3. Now, as you're finding your way there, here's a question to help get us going. What thoughts come to mind when you hear the word family? Are they negative? Are they positive? Are they peaceful? Are they painful? I know, because I know several of you personally sitting in this room right now, that when some of you think of family, all that comes to mind is brokenness and dysfunction. Like you are already ready for me to get off this subject because your family for you is a sore subject, right? You don't like talking about them. You don't like thinking about them. Anytime you have to be around them, you're looking at your watch like hoping it's time to go. Some of you are nodding your head, so we know that's you. But look, then there are others of us who when we think about our families, all that comes to mind is joy and happiness. We love our families. We love being around them and we love talking to other people about them. And personally, I fall into this latter category. You know, I've shared my story here before, but I grew up in a great family. My mom and dad still love each other deeply to this day. Uh, in fact, last month, they just celebrated 39 years of marriage, which is pretty awesome, right? Um, they love Jesus deeply, which is probably the most important thing. They've both been walking with him since before I was here alive on the earth. Uh, and then lastly, they love me and my brother deeply. Always have. Like, they were far from perfect while we were growing up, but they did a great job in raising us. And never once in my entire life have I questioned their motives, their intention, their character, or their love for me. Now, I probably wouldn't have said what I'm about to say next as a teenager, but at this point in my life, especially after having a family of my own, I think one of the things that made our family so great was the clarity my parents provided around what it meant to be a part of our family. You see, they gave us certain responsibilities to carry, and out of their love for us also provided very clear expectations on how to carry ourselves. So, for example, my brother and I, we were always expected to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir, no, sir, and not just to our parents, but to every adult we ever talked to because respect for authority was a huge deal in our house, as was hard work. You see, being a part of our family meant you couldn't be lazy and you couldn't be a freeloader. And so my brother and I, we had to keep our rooms clean. We took out the trash. We did all the yard work. Uh, we'd help my dad work on cars at times, would help with the laundry, help with the dishes. And I appreciate that. Like, I didn't always appreciate it then, but I appreciate it now because at a very early age, I learned that this world would never hand me anything. That if I wanted something, I was going to have to work hard for it. 
I can vividly remember as a teenager, I was getting close to 16, uh, my dad sat me down and he said, son, you want a car when you turn 16? And I said, yes, sir, I do. And he said, great, get a job. (laughs) And so I did. He said, if you want a car, you're going to help pay for it. You're going to help pay for insurance and you're going to help pay for gas. So I went to school and then I worked a few days a week in addition to the extracurricular activities I was involved in. And I contributed financially to my car expenses. Uh, My dad and I had a similar conversation before I went off to college about tuition. Like I did pretty well in high school, so I earned the Hope Scholarship. And I'll never forget, my dad straight up told me, he said, son, I love you, but if you lose that scholarship, it's on you. You will have to figure out all by yourself how to pay for college. And I believed my dad. And so I buckled down and I worked really hard and I kept my scholarship all four years and paid a grand total of zero dollars for my degree. Now listen, I could share all kinds of stories like those with you, but my point again, it's really simple. It meant something to be a part of our family. It meant responsibilities over rights and it meant contribution over consumption. And I need you to know today that the same is true when it comes to being a part of Jesus' family. You see, being a part of his family means something. It means that you carry certain family responsibilities and it means that you meet certain expectations on how to carry yourself as a son or a daughter of God. And these are the realities we're gonna see play out in our passage today because in it, Jesus defines for us what it means to be a part of his true family. So if your Bibles are open, let's pick up and start reading. Mark chapter three, uh, we're gonna pick up in verse 20. And if you don't have anything with you, it'll be on the screen so you can follow along there, okay? Mark says, then, then Jesus, he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now, as we make our way through these verses today, what we're gonna see are three accusations being brought against Jesus along with two announcements being made by him. And I don't know if you caught this, but in verse 21, we just saw the first accusation. If you were here last Sunday, you might remember, we talked about Jesus calling and appointing his 12 disciples. Well, this takes place right after that. Mark says after he did it, he went home. And home for Jesus during this time was somewhere in Capernaum, probably Peter and Andrew's house. And when they got there, we're told that a crowd so large gathered again that Jesus and his disciples, they couldn't even eat. Well, his family catches wind of it. They hear that Jesus is so consumed with caring for the needs of other people that he's not caring for himself and taking care of his own needs, basic needs like eating. And so his family goes out from their hometown of Nazareth, some 20 to 30 miles from Capernaum, and Mark says they went out to seize him. Uh, The literal translation there is they went out to arrest Jesus. Now, why would they do that? Why would Jesus' family walk 20 to 30 miles to go arrest him? Well, this brings us to the first accusation. It's this. His family kept saying he's crazy. The brother has lost his mind, right? Mentally, he's not all there. He's gone off the rails. And what we need to do is go capture and rescue poor little Jesus because he needs our help. Now, just out of curiosity, does that sound familiar to anyone Like anybody's family think you have absolutely lost your mind because of your faith in Jesus. Like they look at the way you love him and the way you love other people and the way you give your money and the way you serve others. And you talked about those mission trips you wanna go on and they look at you and they say, have you absolutely lost your mind? 
Look, if that's you today, I just want to encourage you and remind you that Jesus' family thought he was crazy too. All right, so you're in good company, and I pray that encourages you in some way today. But look, a part of me believes that his family went out to seize him or, or capture him out of genuine care and concern for him. But there's another part of me believes that they went out to do it out of genuine care and concern for themselves. You see, in this ancient Jewish culture, family honor and family shame were serious matters, which meant you didn't do anything to make your family look bad. Well, Jesus was making his family look bad. Everywhere he went, crowds and chaos seemed to follow him. The religious leaders of his day had nothing good to say about him because by this point in his ministry, he was going around telling people he was God. And so can we be honest? Uh, If this was us, we'd probably think that Jesus had gone a little crazy too, right? I mean, if that was your son or or if that was your brother, you'd probably look at him and and you'd say to yourself, we got to stop him. He's off the rails. He's going to hurt himself. He's, He's making our family look bad. We have to put this to an end. And so his family, again, they go out to seize him. Now go back to the passage with me. Where Mark goes next is significant. Verse 22. He continues, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And Jesus called to them, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, in these verses, we find Mark using a literary device called intercalation. This is when a storyteller interrupts one story with another story. Right? He basically sandwiches a new story in the midst of a story he's already telling. And storytellers do this for a variety of purposes. Uh, number one, to indicate a lapse in time. Number two, to heighten the suspense of the first story. Number three, to contrast the two stories. And then finally, number four, to use the two stories to interpret each other. Well, when you read this, it looks like Mark was using this device for all four purposes. I mean, there was an obvious lapse in time, right? His family had to walk, again, 20 to 30 miles to go capture him. That was going to take a little while. Uh, It obviously heightens the suspense of the first story. I mean, it's like an episode of loss, right? He just leaves us hanging. It's like, what happened? Did they arrest him or did they not arrest him? I mean, did he go peacefully? Did he put up a fight? And so we're kind of left wondering what happened in the midst of the story. Uh, The two stories contrast each other in some obvious ways that we'll see in a moment. And they also help to interpret one another. Because in both stories, Jesus is rejected by his own. In the first story, he's rejected by his own family. And in the second story that we're going to talk about in just a moment, he's rejected by his own people, the Jewish people. The very people that God established and chose as a possession for himself. Listen, it's in this sandwiched story that the other two accusations against Jesus are brought and the first announcement by him is made. Uh, Mark says that, that these scribes, these were teachers of the Old Testament law. They came down from Jerusalem and the first accusation they brought against him was this. He's possessed by Beelzebul. I don't know, some of us are looking at this and going, Beelzebul, who? Bro, like what? What's that about? Listen, it's believed that Beelzebul was originally the name of a pagan demonic god uh, celebrated and worshipped by the Canaanites. Uh, Potentially the deity and god known as Baal. 
Uh, it's also believed, and there's some evidence for this, that over time, the name Beelzebul came to be used as a name for Satan himself. And so here's the accusation. It means one of two things. Either Jesus is possessed by a demonic pagan god, or Jesus is possessed by Satan. In either case, it's not a very flattering accusation. You with me? All right, the second accusation they bring is this. He's working with Satan. Jesus and Satan are in collusion with one another. This is what they mean when they say, by the prince of demons, that's Satan, Jesus casts out demons. Uh, Jesus has buddied up with Satan, and he is using satanic power to free people of demon possession. Now, look up here for just a moment, if you will. Uh, You don't have to be a rocket scientist, and you don't have to be a Christian to know how irrational those claims and accusations are, right? I mean, you could be an agnostic, an atheist, believe in another religion today, and if you're honest with yourself, you'd have to sit back and go, yeah, those are pretty dumb, uh, pretty absurd. But just in case anyone missed it, Jesus decides to point out the irrationality of these accusations using three different parables. The first parable he uses is one about a divided kingdom. He says, listen, if a kingdom is divided against itself, there's no way that kingdom can stand. And if you want to see the truth of that statement, just look across our world today and and examine some of those nations currently involved in civil wars, and you will see the devastation left behind by divided kingdoms. The second parable is one about a divided house. Jesus says, like kingdoms, if a house is divided against itself, it will not stand. Now look, some of us know that to be true from our own experiences, don't we? We either know people or we are those people whose lives have been absolutely devastated by divided houses. And so we get what Jesus was getting at. The point of these first two parables was really simple. I mean, Jesus is saying to these scribes, guys, to suggest that I am casting demons out of people uh, by working with Satan or by using satanic powers, it's absolutely ludicrous. Like that would mean that, that Satan is divided against himself. He, he's fighting with himself. And if he's fighting with himself, that means that he is tearing down his own kingdom and his own household, and he will not be able to stand. Now, I love what Jesus does next. He tells this third parable to make sense for these guys uh, what's really going on. It's a parable about a strong man. And he basically says this. If a thief wanted to steal from a strong man, like break into his house and take things from him, the first thing that he'd have to do is bind that strong man. Because if he doesn't bind that strong man, what's going to happen to him? That strong man's going to beat him into the ground, right? And so he needs to sneak into that guy's house in the middle of the night, you know, like chloroform him, drug him, something, tie him up, throw him in a closet. And then he can take all he wants. The point of Jesus' parable is this, and please don't miss it. Look, this is huge. He's explaining to these scribes, Satan is that strong man. And his house is where sin, sickness, death, and demon possession live. His possessions are those people enslaved to those things. Demons are his agents who carry out his work in the lives of those people. And no one can carry away the possessions of Satan unless he first binds Satan. Jesus is saying to the scribes, that's what I've been doing. That's what I've been doing. Satan is the strong man, but I, Jesus, am stronger. In casting demons out of people, I've been breaking into the brother's house, binding him up, and plundering his possessions. Look, this is incredible news for us today. Because those words from Jesus remind us that there is absolutely nothing Satan can do in our lives that he cannot overcome. Listen, I don't know what you walked into this room dealing with. Maybe you walked in and you're struggling with discouragement or defeat. 
You're trapped in feelings of despair, regret, guilt, shame. Maybe for you it's pride or it's addiction or it's some type of hidden sin. Uh, maybe some of you walked in today just mad. You're mad at life and you're mad at the world. Maybe you're mad at somebody for something they did to you and you just can't get over it or let it go. Like, I don't know what your issue is, but here's what I do know. Jesus can deliver you. He can deliver you from that thing in your life that Satan keeps using against you to keep you trapped in discouragement and defeat. But please hear me. If you want to be delivered, you have to walk out the door with Jesus. Are you with me? In other words, you can't sit around in Satan's house wishing freedom would come when freedom has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, his desire, listen, his desire is to plunder you out of the hands of your enemy. But if you want to be plundered, you have to trust in Jesus as the one and the one alone who can steal you away from the enemy. This is where it starts. Jesus has come to rescue us as sinful people and to take us away from the very one who wants to destroy our lives. Listen, after sharing these parables, Jesus, he, he gets in to the first announcement that he makes in the passage and we find that first announcement in verses 28 through 30. Read it with me. He continues and he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but uh, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, that's the scribes, that Jesus has an unclean spirit. If you're taking notes, here's the first announcement Jesus makes. There's only one sin that keeps you out of the family. There's only one sin that keeps you out of the family. Not a multitude of sins, not a variety of sins. There's just one sin that keeps you out of his family. Uh, have you ever heard someone talk about the unforgivable sin? Ever heard someone bring that up? Uh, there's been a lot of argument over the centuries about what that sin is. Some people have suggested that it's adultery. Others have said it's murder. Others have said it's suicide. And they're all wrong, okay? Um, it's not any of those things. As a pastor, I've been asked about this a lot. James, what is the unforgivable sin and how do I know if I've committed it? And I would just say to you, if you're worried about being somebody who's committed it, uh, you haven't committed it, okay? Uh, the fact that you're worried about it just proves that you haven't yet committed it, okay? If you have ever asked this question, what is that sin and have I done it or how does a person do it? Jesus does us a favor in these verses and he answers the question for us. He starts by using this phrase that appears 13 times in the book of Mark, 62 times in the rest of the uh, Gospels. This phrase, truly I say to you. That word truly there is translated from the word amen, which for the Jewish people and even for us today was a word of confirmation, right? If somebody said something true or reliable, you would give them a big amen at the end of whatever it is uh, they said to confirm the truth of their statement. Well, Jesus does something unprecedented here. And instead of using that word as a word of confirmation, he uses it as a word of self-affirmation. He doesn't put amen at the end of a statement. He puts it at the beginning. Amen. I'm telling you the truth. Like, lean in and listen, because what I'm about to tell you, you can be 100% sure of. God will forgive every sin and every blasphemy a person utters. How unbelievable is that? I mean, how much does, does that reality prove God's grace toward us as sinful people? That you and I can do some absolutely awful, disgusting things. That we can say some absolutely disgusting, awful things. And God, through Jesus, will forgive us every single time if we'll simply ask him. That's amazing, right? Jesus says, look, there's just one sin that God won't forgive. Just one. 
There's only one sin that keeps you out of his family. And he says it's the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, what in the world does that mean? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And how does a person commit that sin? Well, again, there's been a lot of speculation on the answer to that question over the centuries. But in the context of these verses we're looking at, I believe the idea is pretty simple. Listen, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not something committed in a moment or through an isolated act. Uh, Instead, it's committed over a long period of time. It it is when a person holds fast to an attitude of defiance and hostility toward the Spirit's saving work manifested in Jesus. Right? I'll make sense of this. Listen, this is what the scribes did when they said that Jesus has an unclean spirit. Right? Think about it. Here's Jesus casting demons out of people. And instead of acknowledging that as the Holy Spirit's work, the work of God, they keep calling it the work of Satan. And the indication of verse 30 is that they just kept saying it over and over and over and over again, thus rejecting Jesus. Now, in our context today, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit could look like this. It could look like that person who over time constantly rejects Jesus by rejecting the Spirit's revelation and leading. So the Holy Spirit is is putting truth in front of that person, uh, exposing that person to God's work in the world around them, in the lives of other people. He's trying to usher them into the light. Yet, even though they hear the truth and see the light and see evidence of God's work in the lives of other people, they keep choosing lies and darkness over it. Are you with me? They keep rejecting Jesus by rejecting the Spirit's saving work manifested in and through him. Jesus, again, he's going, that's just the one sin. That's the only sin that God won't forgive. There's just one sin that keeps you out of the family of God, and it is the rejection of the Spirit's work in and through me. Now, listen, with that said, I want to encourage you today to always remember that as long as a person is living and breathing, there is still hope for them, right? Like as cold and dead as a person's heart may seem, God will still extend forgiveness as long as that person is willing to receive it. So look up here. That person in your life or those people in your life that you've given up on, that you've written off, well, God's not ever gonna do anything in them. Look, don't go there. Don't allow your mind and your heart to get to that place. Don't ever stop loving them. Don't ever stop praying for them. And don't ever stop believing in God's ability and power to completely change their lives. The second announcement that Jesus makes is found in the next set of verses, 31 through 35. Let's read this and then we'll talk about it. Mark, he says this, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them and said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Mark, he comes back to the original story. Do you see what I meant earlier when I told you about uh, him interrupting one with the other? He comes back to this story of Jesus' family going out to season. And he says when they finally showed up to the house where Jesus was staying, instead of going inside and talking to him, they stood outside and sent for him. Which is kind of strange when you think about it. It's like they didn't even want to go in the house where Jesus was. But I envision them saying to someone closest to the door, hey, uh, our boy Jesus is in there. I'm his mom. These are his brothers. Could you go in and let him know we're outside looking for him? 
And so that person passes along word to the next person, and that person passes it to the next person, until finally word reaches the followers of Jesus that are sitting closest to him. And they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, your family's outside. Your mom and your brothers are here. They're looking for you. And that's when Jesus makes the second announcement. He says this, whoever does the will of the Father is family. You said my family's outside. My family's right here. Because whoever does the will of the Father, those are the people who are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. Listen, with this announcement, Jesus makes two primary points that we need to take note of, all right? And if you're taking notes, I'll give you some stuff to write down. The first point is this. Uh, Number one, Jesus wants us to understand that his family transcends genetics and physical relationships. Let me say it again. His family transcends genetics and physical relationships. So in other words, nobody can claim to be a part of Jesus' family while rejecting Jesus, even if they're his own mother and brothers. Instead, according to Jesus, people who are a part of his true family, uh, those are the people who in faith walk in obedience to the will of God. Now, please listen to what I'm getting ready to say next, because I don't need you leaving confused, all right? Please hear me. Jesus in teaching this is not suggesting that the way we get into the family of God is by obeying the will of God, right? Uh, Jesus is not saying here, hey, if you'll obey a bunch of rules, God will be pleased and he'll let you in. Uh, Keep all these commands and, and God might accept you as a son or as a daughter. That's not what he's teaching here. You see, the way that we get into God's family is by God's grace and through our faith in Jesus, When we put our faith in Jesus, God graciously adopts us in. And when he adopts us in, he then, through the Holy Spirit, puts a desire inside of us to walk in accordance with his will as it's revealed in the scriptures. And that desire is born out of of an understanding of two things. Number one, that God is a good, loving father who always wants the best for his kids. And number two, that God is a good father out of his love for us, gives us rules and commands, and and he gives us his will, will not to lead us into a life of misery and despair, but into a life of hope and freedom. Again, the point Jesus is making is really simple. Physical relationships prove nothing. Genetics and bloodlines prove nothing. The only thing that proves a person is in the family of God is their obedience to the will of God, their good father. Now, the second primary point that Jesus makes is this, that spiritual ties are closer than family ties. That spiritual ties are closer than family ties, which isn't to suggest that family doesn't matter uh, or that your family relationships don't have value. They absolutely do. Jesus was not rejecting his own family in this passage. Again, he was just trying to teach here that spiritual relationships are on a higher plane than physical relationships. Listen, some of you are going to get this. This is why there are people in this room right now who feel closer to their brothers and sisters in Christ than they do to their own brothers and sisters. You with me? It's why some of you feel closer to your spiritual mothers and fathers, to your own mothers and fathers. It doesn't mean you don't love your own family. It doesn't mean they're bad or awful people. It just means this that the oneness and closeness you experience with other people who are in the true family of Jesus, it's impossible to experience with your own family unless your family also belongs to his family. Now, in closing, the only question left to answer is the so what question. So what, James, what does all this mean for me? Uh, What am I supposed to do with all this talk about Jesus' family? Well, I wanna give you two things, two quick answers, and then we'll be done, okay? Number one starts with this. 
If you're someone who walked into the room today and you have never put your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, you have to take your place in Jesus' family. This is where it starts for you. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave up his life to give you a place in his family. He took nails to make you a son. He took beatings to make you a daughter. At the cross, he drank in every bit of wrath and punishment that your sin deserved so that you could be forgiven, loved by God, and adopted in by him. You see, you can't get yourself into his family. You can't do it through hard work or good behavior. You can't get into the family of God through, you know, your mom or your dad or your grandparents who are Christians before you. Like, their faith doesn't, doesn't get you in by default. I, as the pastor of this church, can't do anything to get you in. Only Jesus gets you in. And he gets you in when you put your faith and trust in him and in him alone as the one who can save you out of the realm of darkness, Satan's household, and bring you into the family of God. And so if you're someone who needs to take your place in Jesus' family, in just a few moments before we leave, I'm gonna help you do that, all right? But for those of us who go, well, James, I've already done that, so what do I do with all this? Well, here's the answer. Uh, If you're in Jesus' family, act like it. That's it. If you're in the family, act like it. Now, look. This is not my ploy to guilt or shame you into obedience. Like if you've been around Crosspoint for any length of time, you know that guilt, shame, condemnation is not the game we play here. I'm just trying to remind you today that being in Jesus' family means something. It means walking in obedience to the will of God. It means following the commands of God, not out of duty, guilt, or obligation, but because you love God that much. You know that God is this good father who loves you and he's put his love on display for you through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so your question, the burning question of your heart is always, what can I do to bring joy and pleasure to the heart of God? Look, I'm pleading with you today. If you've taken your place in Jesus' family, live according to those desires the Holy Spirit has placed in you. I know they're there. If he lives inside of you, those desires to bring joy to the heart of God are inside of you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, say no to yourself, say no to the world, say no to your flesh, and say yes to God. It is the only way, listen, it's the only way that the world out there will know whose family you belong to. And it is the only way you will experience the joy and blessing of being a part of Jesus' true family. Uh, last night, I was tucking my oldest daughter into bed. She's five. And on a whim, I just decided to ask her, hey, babe, what do you think it means to be a part of our family? And at first, she said, I don't know, Daddy. And I said, well, just think about it for a minute. I said, it's me, it's you, it's Mommy, it's Sister. What do you think it means to be a part of our family? And uh, after thinking about it for a second, she said, I think it means that we love each other. Like from the mouth of babes, Right? Uh, that seems like a really kind of surfacey, simple answer. But when you think about it, that's a very deep, wise answer. That being a part of the Griffin family means that we love each other. Uh, mom, dad, kid, we, we all love each other. And when we love each other, we honor each other and bless each other. And our family works best. Can I just tell you the same is true when it comes to being in Jesus' family? God loves us deeply. And he's proven it. And the way that we love him back is by obeying him and walking according to his commands. And when we know that God loves us and we're spending our lives loving him, that's when the family of Jesus really works. And that's when life for us works best. And so as we get ready to close today, I would say to you again, if you need to take your place in his family, take your place. 
And if there's an area of your life where you are failing to walk in obedience to the will of God out of love for him, ask God to show it to you and ask him to give you whatever you need to start saying yes to him. Let's bow our heads all over the room and just settle into this moment. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward and to get in their places. And as they do, I want to talk first to those of you in this room right now who walked in without a relationship with Jesus. You're that person who feels hopeless, you feel defeated, you have no peace, even though you pretend like you do. Maybe things on the outside are going well for you. If anybody who knows you saw your life, they'd say you have it all together, but you know you don't have it all together. There are things in your life that need to change, and you can't change them. And everything that you have in your life right now is nothing more than a ploy to convince other people that you're doing just fine, but you know that nothing could be further from the truth. And today you've heard about this God who loves you and wants you in his family so that in this life and throughout eternity, he can pour out his blessings and his kindness onto you as a son or a daughter. If you're that person who needs to come into his family today and receive the love and the grace of God, you need your life to change right in your seat. Why don't you just say something to God like this through prayer? God, would you take me into your family today? Make me a son. Make me a daughter. I believe that Jesus gave his life for me so that I could enter in. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead for me to, to defeat sin and death on my behalf forever so that I could be a part of your family throughout eternity. So God, right now, would you forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future? God, take hold of my life. And God, would you change me into the person you've created me to be? I say yes to Jesus. Listen, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed all across the room, I just wanna ask you if you're someone who just prayed with me and put your faith in Jesus for the first time today, would you do me the simple favor of acknowledging that you made that decision by just lifting a hand? Just throw it up real high. James, that's me. I asked God for the first time to take me into his family today. Put my faith in Jesus. Just throw your hand up real high where we can see it. For the first time, ask God to make me a son. Ask God to make me a daughter. Awesome, awesome. Well, listen, for the rest of us, as we continue to respond, I would just encourage you right now in this moment just to continue asking God, God, where am I failing to walk in obedience to your will? God, show it to me and give me whatever it is I need to start saying yes to you. God, in the next few moments, would you continue to move in this place, pour out your spirit and do things in our lives that only you can do. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet and respond together.